1: Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cattell of the Royal Historical Society. I am a host on the channel. And today, I'm pleased and honored to be interviewing Simon Lord Carey on his book, Lansdowne, The Last Great Whig. Uh, Lord Carey, uh, what is the primary thesis of your book?
0: The primary thesis of my book is to show that Lord Lansdowne not only epitomized the challenges that his class had to face from the late Victorian period through to the interwar years, but that his life and career profoundly affected um, the course of modern
1: history. Lord Lansdow had an official biography uh, done, uh, I believe it's uh, 90 or 91 years ago, or 89 years ago, by Lord Newton. There has not been except perhaps one book by, um, I believe it's Hugh Cecil, around 12 years ago, not been anything uh, done specifically on his career since. What do you attribute that to?
0: Well, one reason for this may be that he is seen as an unfashionable symbol of empire and colonialism. He was an unelected political figure, held senior colonial offices, and he was also a significant Irish landlord. Another is that he was limited by his own qualities, cautious, modest unselfish, and loyal. He never promoted himself and would rather be ridiculed than engage in public controversy. As well as the Peace Letter of 1917, he's been criticized for the Army's failings in the Boer War and for the Lord's response to the Parliament Bill of 1911.
1: So so in essence, in personality-wise, you could almost say he's the polar opposite of an individual, of uh, one of his earlier, I'm sorry, younger contemporaries, Lord Curzon, uh, in terms of personality,
0: I think that yes, they differed. They differed. They differed immensely.
1: Now, the, uh, am I correct in assuming that the origins of the book was your doctoral dissertation that you wrote uh, under Thomas Ott, uh, examining uh, Lord, Land- Lord Lansdow's, uh time at the War Office? Is that correct? That is correct. How did you like working with Thomas Ott?
0: Um, well, I, I, Thomas Ott is a is a um, a history professor at the University of East Anglia. And um, he is immensely knowledgeable of uh, the, the period that, that Lansdowne lived through. Um, and he is a diplomatic historian. So uh, those two qualities made working um, with him, um, you know, immensely fulfilling.
1: Now, is it is in fact correct that uh, Lord Lansdowne was the uh, great grandson of the French, well-known French statesman Talleyrand? Yes, he was. Did he ever exhibit any particular interest in uh, Talleyrand? No.
0: Um, There there was no archival evidence of of his interest in Talleyrand.
1: Understood. So, um, could you explain to the audience, um, A, why was Lansdow a Whig, as opposed to being a liberal when he entered British politics? Uh, parliamentary politics in the eighteen sixties. And for his generation, what did being a Whig mean?
0: Well, by eighteen sixty eight, when he entered politics, the term really meant the great landowning families of, of of Britain. And these were the most exclusive group of the aristocracy, including the Grosvenors, the Spencers, Cavendishes, Benticks, Russell's, Pelham's, and and the Petty FitzMorrises. They rested their power in, in, in such a consortium, molded by blood and breeding, um, and, and wiggory influenced all of Lansdowne's predecessors in their upbringing, their marriages, their intellectual traditions, and social standing. They were convinced that they were the chosen people, um, and they saw themselves as guardians of the country's liberties. Now, Lansdowne grew up with with this thinking. Um, But politically, Whiggism in 1868 was very nearly redundant. Um, The Whigs had merged with the Liberals in 1859, and by the mid-1860s, the Liberal Party was led by William Gladstone, a former Peelite. And so Whigs, such as Lansdowne, caught between their liberalism and their landlordism, Um, many opted for the latter. Um, But while modern politics drove Whiggism closer to extinction, the Whig tradition and its principles did not altogether disappear from politics.
1: Now, on page 34, you state that Lansdow viewed Gladstone with, quote, contempt, unquote. Uh, A, why was that the case? And B, did that impact in any way on his relationship with the man who you characterize as political mentor, uh, Lord Granville, who was uh, Gladstone's closest friend in politics, I I presume.
0: Well, Lansdowne disagreed strongly with Gladstone over the Prime Minister's Irish policy. Um, His strategy of pacifying Ireland meant the permanent weakening of the position of Irish landlords, like Lansdowne. Gladstone's zeal for religious and political causes sat uncomfortably with the moderate liberalism for which Whigs like Lansdowne and his political colleagues, including Granville and Hartington, were spokesmen. Gladstone's power rested in moral opinion, and for Whigs such as Lansdowne, it lay in educated opinion. At the time, it did strain his relationship with Granville but the latter held no resentment and continued to support Lansdowne. And Lansdowne recognized uh, their friendship in a letter he wrote shortly after Granville died in March, 1891, um, in which uh, I'm going to quote from the letter. There was no one outside my own family who filled so large a space in the foreground of my life. I can remember him for, I suppose, almost 40 years, And I cannot call to mind one instance in which he failed me. What I should have done without his help and encouragement when I first attempted political work, I do not know. No one understood better the value of a few kindly words or a little bit of sound advice to a youngster than he did. I recollect his coming to me at Lansdowne House after my father's death and the way in which he shared our sorrow. And many years afterwards, I remember how patient and forbearing he was when I resigned my office, not, I am afraid, with a very good grace.
1: In your um, discussions of uh, Lansdow's governor generalship of Canada, you you state that uh, Lansdow was, quote, pro-American, unquote. Uh, Why was he so, and um, uh, how did that uh, impact, if at all, his uh, policies while he was Governor General, or for that matter, Foreign Secretary?
0: Um, Well, firstly, um, I should mention that his great-grandfather, the first Marquis, had played an important role in negotiating the end of the American War of Independence. Um, Lord Shelburne, as he was then known, had a vision of long-term benefit to Britain through trade with a large and increasingly prosperous United States. And Lansdowne thought similarly. When he arrived in Canada as governor general in 1883, he met many Americans with whom he got on with, and he was determined to resolve one of the long-standing disputes with America regarding fisheries. This he, he, he more or less managed to do. Seventeen years later, as foreign secretary, he recognized U.S. supremacy in western waters, And in settling two major sources of friction regarding the Central American Ship Canal and the Alaska-Canadian boundary, he helped to establish a lasting Anglo-American understanding. Secondly, he also encouraged the United States to exert itself more dominantly in the cause of world peace. However, as a gentleman politician, he differed quite often with his American counterparts As to ideas of form, uh, most notably clashing with Theodore Roosevelt's brash enthusiasm, and going so far on one occasion to label the American president a strange being. Uh,
1: Just so. Uh, Why did um, Lansdowne become a liberal Unionist?
0: Gladstone's attempt to give home rule to Ireland, Mm -hmm. and the breakup of the Union, and integrity of the Empire that would obviously follow, concerned Lansdowne. The Liberal Unionist Party was formed by Lord Hartington to defeat home rule and afford a basis for reconciliation of the Liberals. It included many other Whigs whom Lansdowne knew and respected well.
1: And um, uh, you you point out at one um, section of the text that uh, he was offered a seat in the cabinet by Salisbury, um and he refused it based on the fact that uh, he did not wish to be parted from uh, his uh, liberal unionist colleagues did that indicate this i think is in the late 1880s uh mid late late 1880s uh that that uh, he was still ambivalent about um, crossing the floor as it were
0: that's that's absolutely correct yes
1: now, uh, subsequent to his governorship, generalship of Canada, he became a viceroy of India. How would you compare him to uh, his immediate uh, predecessors and uh, his immediate successors? Uh, and in particular, I'm thinking of uh, Lord Dufferin, who in some ways uh, is uh, quite comparable to Lord Lansdow, both being governor generals of uh, Canada as well as uh, viceroys of India, both being Anglo Irish landlords.
0: That's a very good point. And, and, and uh, in order to answer your question, I'll focus rather more on Dufferin and leave Lord Elgin, who was um, Lansdowne's successor as viceroy of India, um, out of the picture. So I'll just focus on Dufferin. Dufferin um, was, among other things, an adventurer and a travel writer. Um, his letters from high latitude. were a publishing sensation, and he was very much a celebrity of his time. But in attempting to sustain his reputation, he ultimately fell victim to unsavory entanglements. Lansdowne was far more cautious. Um, Whereas Dufferin once noted that public applause was very pleasant to anyone in public service, Lansdowne cared little or nothing for such sentiment as long as he consciously satisfied his own values and principles. Um, and, and on another occasion, Dufferin remarked, I'm a great believer in frivolity. Um, Lansdowne, by contrast, inspired confidence by hard work and no self-interest.
1: Now, um, in your uh, chapter, or I think two, two or three chapters, dealing with Lansdow at the War Office, would it be correct to say that you view Lansdow as being a reformer in the Cardwell tradition?
0: That's absolutely correct. Yes,
1: and uh, you tend, you in essence, say that uh, the mishaps—I think that would be a good way of expressing it—that the British Army suffered in the opening stages of the South African War, beginning in the fall of 1899, could not, in fact, be laid solely or uh, mostly at uh, his um, his fault. Is that correct?
0: Yes, he had no direct responsibility. For, for, for the setbacks. Um, his decisions in the run-up to the Boer War were not made in a vacuum but were taken after consultation with his cabinet colleagues and military advisers. The path to war and the initial reverses were littered with decisions taken by individuals with, with conscious objectives based on their individual beliefs and the information they had available to them. Um, Lansdowne accepted that they had underrated the fighting value and power of endurance of the Boers, and that more was not done to prepare the army for war on account of political considerations. But he held the view that the troops in and on their way to South Africa in September 1899 were sufficient to secure the colonies. That being so, the War Office did not see much point in sending out an army corps until it was likely to find on arrival that everything was ready for its advance he believed that the problem was not was was was, 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 was not the fault of the system but was actually the, the, the was one of personnel
1: now um, per contra to a piece in the tls which appeared i believe it's april 24th uh, i correct me if i'm wrong but Lansdow himself did not have any direct responsibility of uh, the employment of uh, what was Uh, initially called Concentration Camps uh, for Boer women and children. Uh, That was more, I believe, Lord Kitchener's uh, uh, policy. Is that correct?
0: That is absolutely correct. Yes, yes.
1: Now, uh, subsequent to his time at the war office, he was uh, made Foreign Secretary, succeeding Lord Salisbury. Now, um, most historians, Thomas Todd, among others, say that Salisbury at the Foreign Office had a very Olympian view of his role and did not really uh, care to um, regard his colleagues, the staff, even the permanent undersecretary, Sir Thomas uh, um, Sanderson. Uh, is it correct to say that Lansdell had a different uh, view of his role and did tend to... Uh, regard the staff, uh, particularly the deputy secretary, assistant secretaries, as colleagues and was more willing to discuss policy and formulate policy uh, with their input?
0: Um, Yes. Yes, it would certainly be fair to say that Lansdowne took a more collegial view in running the Foreign Office than, than his predecessor had. However. Um, it should be noted that Salisbury was not altogether, altogether given to ruling from a lofty height. Um, but, but anyway, Lansdowne certainly avoided the role of prima donna. Um, he treated his colleagues in the, in the, in the department as equals um, and encouraged them to, to voice their opinions. Um, he did much to ensure knowledge sharing with other de- government departments in Whitehall and to make the department less insular. Um, But one should also bear in mind that the geopolitical environment had changed since um, 1878, when Salisbury became Foreign Secretary. Um, Salisbury was fundamentally a mid-Victorian optimist. He was confident in Britain's power and conscious of the weaknesses held by her possible enemies. In 1877, he had compared British foreign policy to floating lazily downstream, occasionally putting out a diplomatic boat hook to avoid collisions. He never changed his view. Lansdowne was was not so sure, um, and he worried that Britain and the empire were under attack.
1: If you endorse uh, Lord Vassitar, um, a um, uh permanent undersecretary at the foreign office in the 1930s in his um, memoir, The Missed Recession, where he says of all the foreign secretaries that he worked uh, with, uh, Lansdowne possessed the best command of French.
0: Yes, I would agree. But not only did he speak French fluently, but all his life he corresponded with his French relatives. And as a young adult, he experienced Um, the chancellery in Paris and was introduced to many French politicians um, through his um, grandfather. So he understood what it was like to be a French person.
1: And um, uh, apropos of that is um, the relationship between Lansdow and the, if you like, diplomatic revolution in British diplomacy, which he began first with the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902 and then the subsequent Entente Cordiale uh, with Del Casse in uh, 1904. Uh, would you say, though, that unlike his successor, Sir Edward Grey, Lansdow had a more, how should I put it, realpolitik view of the Entente Cordiale? He did not view it in the sort of emotional or, if you like, ideological terms that Sir Edward Gray, subsequently seemed to have of it?
0: Um, I would say that Lansdowne believed that a good understanding with France would quite possibly be the precursor to a better understanding with Russia and a boost to Britain's international position, which in view of Britain's then relations with Germany as well as Russia, he did not regard very highly. Gray I would argue took a similar view. Um, I, I happen to know that on a, on the first of june nineteen oh four he told the House of Commons that he welcomed the agreement, um, but with Russia foremost in his mind, he encouraged the government to make the Entente a working model for other cases where possible. So I think the difference is that, that Grey saw this as, as 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 something that was going to lead to to to, to further, further 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 alliances in Entente.
1: Now, isn't it also the case at the beginning of his tenure at the Foreign Office, which is uh, December 1900, uh, Lansdowne, along with Balfour and, to a, and for a time uh, Joseph Chamberlain, the colonial secretary, was very interested in some type of uh, alliance with Germany? Uh, yes,
0: yes, that's correct. Yes, 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 that's correct. I mean, he believed... That, um, that, that, that only agreement with Germany could prevent Russia from, from consolidating in Manchuria, which was, which was the, the sort of the, 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 the particular issue at that moment. Um, but, but, but if you're, I mean, as you're aware, in the end, his attempt to build his Far East policy on these lines
1: came to nothing. Yes, and would you say that's more because of uh, German uninterest in having a um Alliance relationship, a de jure alliance relationship with the United Kingdom uh, for fear of Russia.
0: Um, Yes, I think you could you could say that that was certainly part of it.
1: Yes. Now, with the uh, uh, Liberals' uh, electoral victory in December nineteen oh five, Lansdowne leaves the foreign office, but uh, he he uh, is still the Conservative leader. In the House of Lords uh, succeeding Salisbury in nineteen o two uh would you say that uh, his role along with uh, a j balfour uh was filled with the uh, political mistakes in the uh, people 's budget uh, electoral or political crisis
0: um i think i think the, 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 i mean the great the great sort of um, argument here is that the House of Lords became um, a sort of vehicle for Balfour to um, thwart liberal Social welfare reforms and, and various other bills, and certainly th- there is evidence of that. But I think um, just to just to give a, a wider view, Lansdowne didn't—I um, mean, the, the Lansdowne was not a, 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 a poodle. I think that was the word Lloyd George used of uh, of, of Balfour. He um, obviously thought carefully about how to um, preserve. Um, some of the institutions that he strongly believed in. And um, he thought that the House of Lords represented the permanent feelings of the country. Um, And so when Lloyd George sent the People's Budget in 1909, um, they obviously he and his colleagues um, had to decide whether um, it should pass or or not. Um, And the taxes were not that significant, um, although many of Lansdowne's Landowning colleagues were, were 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 horrified that that that, that they were, but in, in in hindsight, you know, they really weren't that significant. What I think bothered Lansdowne was that there was a case um, uh, against the constitution that uh, a, a, a budget was being used as a vehicle to um, as a money bill. That, that there was there was an, there was evidence of tacking onto this budget um, a money bill and. Um, They took a a view that this was was unconstitutional, Um, and I think they were probably carefully um, advised – well, I know they were carefully advised – by Dicey and other um, um, men of uh, legal standing. So that was the background to that that, that decision to reject the budget.
1: And subsequently, with the um – passing of the um, uh, law which restricted the House of Lords uh, veto uh, home rule uh, for Ireland came on the horizon in your in your book initially it appears that in 1911 and early 1912 that uh, Lansdow had a somewhat moderate view of the prospects of home rule coming into effect whereas subsequently in 1913 1914 he appears to have gone almost fully to the sort of sir edward carson um no surrender position why why the um change i think i think
0: um i want to bring in um Bonalore here um, and, uh, and just discuss him briefly, um, to, to, because I think that, that my answer requires a little bit of background. Um, Law was um, the Conservative leader of the House of Commons after Balfour resigned in 1911, um, and um, he and Lansdowne um, continued to work together um, for the Conservative Party um, up until Lansdowne um, stepped down from the House of Lords in 1916. Um, Law was um, quite different from uh, Arthur Balfour, who, who he had succeeded. Um, and I think I, I just ought to make a point about what Law's position on Ireland was, because this had um, an influence. Um, on how Lansdowne thought about it. Um, and um, I'm going to sort of just briefly mention a few things. Um, Law's position on Ireland, um, and Ulster in particular, was dictated really by an unbridgeable political gulf between the Protestant North and Catholic South over Ireland's relationship with the imperial metropole. Unlike Lansdowne, he had little knowledge of the South or the West of Ireland, but he did know Ulster. His father was born there, and um, his brother practiced medicine there. He believed that the Liberals had twisted the rules of the political game over home rule. And he thought it was unforgivable, this this is in 1912, that the government had not submitted the issue to the people in an election. He believed that Ulster was therefore the key to home rule. He believed it was impossible peacefully to force one quarter of the population of Ireland into estrangement from the United Kingdom if they did not wish to be estranged. And he wanted to use the Ulster crisis, which developed during 1912, 1913, to force an election concentrated on home rule. Um, To his mind, harsh words like those he used at Blenheim placed before Asquith, the the then Prime Minister, the choice which could not be avoided, election or resistance, perhaps even armed conflict. And he believed that if Asquith brought in home rule on the authority of the Parliament Act without submitting it to the electorate, then something very nearly resembling civil war would result. Now, Lansdowne um, was an unrepentant unionist. um, And in 1886 and 1883 was a strong anti-home ruler. His principal concern was for the Southern Unionist Party. But by 1912, he had become uneasy about home rule. Um, he did not believe that the anti-home rule cry would catch on as it had done in 1886 and in 1893. He believed that people had got much more used to the idea than previously, and that there was an intense desire to relieve the Westminster Parliament of some of the work it was doing so badly. He also believed, like Bonalore, that the issue should be submitted to the judgment of the country. And he believed that if the majority of the electors declared themselves in favor of it, he did not see how Britain could resist further or encourage Ulster to do so. This was his position in 1912. Shortly after the Blenheim rally um, at which he was present um, and, and at which Law made, 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 made a very passionate speech, he told Austin Chamberlain that he would probably have used language rather less suggestive of readiness to carry a rifle in, our, in, 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 in Ulster, Ulster's defense. So at this time, he was obviously taking a much more uh, moderate view towards towards affairs in Ireland. Um, I think over time, what what brought him into a position um, of of more um, of more, I think his concern grew um, while the, the 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 military question escalated, and I think um, that that is is undoubtedly the answer to to, to why in 1913 and, and early 1914 he's taken a much more Fixed view on how um, Ulster might might um, how 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 Ulster's position might might resolve itself.
1: Now, hard on the 1914 political crisis over uh, home rule and and uh, whether or not Ulster would be uh, included or excluded from it, came the uh, outbreak of the Great War. to what do you attribute uh, Lansdowne's um, um, letters to uh, Asquith, stating that uh, he firmly was in favor? He and the Unionist Party were firmly in favor of um, joining France and resisting uh, Germany uh, prior to the issue of Belgium neutrality being violating violated. Sorry, um, coming up. Yes. Sir.
0: Lansdowne watched um, as as, as diplomatic intervention by the Continental Powers ended. Um, At the end of July 1914, any hope that that Sir Edward Grey, who was the then Foreign Secretary, had that the crisis um, would be contained by negotiation, as in previous Balkan Wars, was disappointed. Um, Gray's invitation to Germany to suggest any method by which the influence of the four powers could be used to prevent a war between Austria and Russia resulted in nothing. Um, And and obviously, on the 30th of of July, Russia ordered a general mobilization in support of their Serbian allies. The next day, Germany and Austria-Hungary took preliminary steps in doing the same. Um, The French were desperate to know what Britain's intentions were. And Gray tried to persuade the cabinet to support France, um, believing that such an undertaking was important for Britain's future reputation. Churchill, Haldane, and Asquith supported him. But the majority of the cabinet, including Burns, Beecham, Simon, and Morley, were all in favor of staying out of the war. Um, The liberal press and two thirds of the liberal party were opposed to war as was the Foreign Affairs Committee. Lansdowne's brother Edmund, um, who was a former Liberal Party under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, was also opposed. Um, He could see no mortal reason why Britain should be dragged into war unless Gray had given pledges of which the House of Commons knew nothing. Lansdowne, through his brother and through his friendship with Asquith and other liberal um, imperialists, had a sense of, 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 of how the party was thinking. He also had a sense of, of, of how the French government was, was, was thinking through um, his friendship with Paul Gambon, who was the French ambassador in London. And the French government was in no doubt that if Germany attacked Russia, France was obliged to help her Russian ally. Gambon... Saw a danger of another 1870. Um, I I think, according to his biographer, he believed Germany would overrun France and become the arbiter of Europe. Um, Gambon saw the problem from a strategic standpoint, whereas Gray at the time saw it very much from a legal point of view. On the 1st of August, um, before Gray um, and and Asquith made up their mind as to which direction they were going to go. Gambon complained to one of Lansdowne's conservative colleagues, who was called George Lloyd. And the conversation was reported um, indirectly to Lansdowne by Austin Chamberlain on the 2nd of August. And In in this, um, I mean, Gambon spoke very bitterly of British inaction. Um, And and he told Lloyd that French military plans had been arranged in common with British ones, that both general staffs had been consulted, and that Britain had seen all the French schemes and preparations for war. And, And he believed that if France and Russia were victorious, while Britain stood aside, they would never forgive Britain. Now, Lansdowne, as a personal friend of Gambon's, was equally alive to the danger. And he was convinced that if Britain hung back, she would incur indelible disgrace and, and lasting danger. Patriotism clearly motivated him, but so did pragmatism. As Foreign Secretary, he had shown flexibility and a willingness to do the right thing. And in his opinion, as, as, as you just mentioned in, uh, in your question, he took the view in a letter to um, Asquith that it would have been fatal to the honor and the future security of the United Kingdom to decline support for war.
1: Now, um, with the outbreak of the Great War, there is, uh, in about uh, 10 months' time, a coalition between the Unionists and the Liberals and which uh, Lansdowne joins uh, Asquith's cabinet, or reconstituted cabinet. How would you say how effective he was in that role for the next, um, from May 1915 to uh, late November, actually December 1916?
0: Lansdowne had influence, but no real power. Um, He held a ministerial position, but did not have a department to run. As such, he found the situation was not without drawbacks. However, he found it easy to work alongside Asquith, whom he had known politically and socially for many years. Aged 70, he was also the oldest member of the cabinet and did not have the same energy as its younger members. His contribution to the war effort in cabinet was far-reaching, however from advising committees on recruitment and conscription policy to agricultural and foreign affairs, notably the Dardanelles and Mesopotamia committees. Whether he was justified in refusing to serve on Asquith's new war committee of 1915 was debatable, but clearly his health was a concern to him. Apart from Balfour, who was appointed First Lord of the Admiralty, none of the other conservatives appointed to the cabinet in May 1915 had a central role in the direction of the war. And although Asquith could not have foreseen it at the time, the coalition made it easy for Lloyd George to cooperate with some of the conservatives and bring about Asquith's downfall and his own advancement as prime minister. Lansdowne, unlike some of his other conservative colleagues, was loyal to the end and can take credit for playing no direct part in this episode. However, it is arguable that his 1916 memorandum calling for a negotiated peace, which the cabinet discussed and rejected, made Asquith vulnerable to the accusation that he was not providing the leadership needed to inspire the nation and crush the need for such discussions.
1: Can you relate to the audience the origins of the Lansdowne letter?
0: Lansdowne was dedicated to the war effort, um, but as the casualties and the financial strain increased during 1916, he began to have his doubts in fighting Germany to a knockout and the military's ability to achieve it quickly. Some experts had had estimated that the war would not end until 1920. In a cabinet memorandum of November 1916, he made a case for a negotiated settlement. The cabinet was divided on the matter. Uh, Lloyd George was adamant. You cannot have a man in a war cabinet who thinks we ought to make peace. After the Asquith government fell the following month and Lloyd George became prime minister, Lansdowne, unsurprisingly, was left out of the new government, and any peace move was off the agenda. During 1917, the Allies' confidence was boosted by the entry of the United States to the war. But after Passchendaele, the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, and General Haig's inability to main a stronghold at the Battle of Cambrai, Lansdowne informed his oldest colleague, Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, of his intention to publish his views. Balfour did not dissuade him and suggested he speak to Charles Hardinge, the permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office. Hardinge thought Lansdowne's letter statesmanlike and would do good. He also explained his position to Colonel Edward House, President Woodrow Wilson's chief advisor on European politics. House scarcely disagreed at all with him. On the 28th of November, he saw Geoffrey Dawson, editor of the Times newspaper, who refused to publish the letter and warned him to do nothing until the Versailles Conference of Inter-Allied Leaders was over. That evening, he met Harry Burnham, proprietor of the Daily Telegraph, in the House of Lords and told him the history of the letter and asked him to publish it. Burnham immediately agreed to do so, remarking that it was a good letter and he would give it prominence. So with the title, Coordination of Allies' War Aims, Lansdowne's letter was published the following morning. Lansdowne was fully aware of the impact his letter would have, both in Britain and abroad.
1: Um, So to sum up, Uh, What would you say is the overall significance of Lansdowne's career in politics?
0: Well, as a statesman and a representative of his class, he demonstrated perfectly the challenges of British politics from the late Victorian period through to the interwar years.
1: And if you wanted people to take away one thing from this book, what would it be?
0: By portraying Lansdowne as a man of his time and returning him to his proper position, the book demonstrates that it is possible to reinterpret the career of a historical figure.
1: Uh, Simon Lord Carey, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Uh, this is Charles Cotillo. Uh, thank you for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you again. Thank you.